Alrighty, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, guess what? We're in the series about James. I know it's shocking. We're still there. Um, I do want to say something though before we start. Um, we did about a year on the book of Revelation. Pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East and pray. Um, I think we're beginning to see things. So uh, just keep that on your prayers. Uh, pray for Israel, pray for Jerusalem, pray for God, pray for all those things. So we're going to jump back into our discussion about James and his letters to the believers of the first century. It's been a couple weeks, and I know Ed went through some really long sermons, so pretty sure we have to go back and regroup a little bit. I want to bring everybody up to speed. James told his readers to consider it joy when they meet trials. Even trials that they cause themselves. He said, hey, consider it joy. And we've been looking at this passage now for seven weeks. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We've been looking at this incredible verse because it contains incredible promises. It, they're amazing when you think about it. James encourages, he says, look, persevere through trials. Remain steadfast. Let God do what he's doing. Stop trying to get out of them. Stop trying to solve them. Stop trying to help God fix them. Stop it. And just be. The one thing that we need to learn in our lives is that when we're going through trials, we need to stop it and allow God to do what he wants to do. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed. It means more than happiness. It means more than carefree life. It means more than no conflict or trouble. It carries the idea of this profound inner joy no matter what you're going through no matter how bad it seems no matter how hard the trial seems something in you says yes i'm good because god is with me i'm good because i don't longer depend on myself i can turn this over to him it carries this idea of just extreme inner joy a joy that only the lord can bestow upon his children people who have the holy spirit Blessed means to be in the center of God's will for your life and to know it. That's what blessed means. When we say we're blessed, I mean, I'm right in the center of God's will. I may be in the middle of a massive storm, but I know God's working through it and I'm good. The only way you and I can actually persevere through trials is to never release our trust in God. When we go through trials, Satan tries to get us to doubt everything we know to be true about God. Tries to get us to put our own intelligence above that of God's. Tries to get us to do our own thing instead of that of God's. To persevere in a trial is to say, you know what? I'm not trusting me. Because my heart's deceptive above all things. In this trial, I'm not going to do anything I think I should do. I'm going to surrender and let God do everything. If we could learn to do that, the trials in our lives would still be there, but our blessedness would dramatically increase. The principle simple, clear, and very gracious. Perseverance brings God's approval. As you surrender into your trial, his approval, James says, brings you the crown of life. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
Perseverance in trials does not result in salvation. It doesn't result in eternal life, but it's the result and evidence that you have those things. You see, when you're in a trial and you have an eternal perspective, you realize this trial is temporary. You realize that, that this trial is nothing in the scheme of eternity. You realize that this trial has nothing to do with much of anything other than God is trying to grow you and change you and get your attention and teach you once again that you have nothing to add to what he's doing. Let him do it. We persevere through trials because we're already saved. If you don't have the salvation, if you don't have the perseverance, if you don't have the blessedness of God in your life, a trial is a pretty scary thing. Because you're basically going into battle and you're completely unarmed and you will be destroyed. James clearly associates faithful perseverance under trial with a genuine love for God. There's only one way you can go through a trial and spend all of your time focused on God and not worried about the outcome, not worried about other things, doing exactly what God told you to do. Now, let me just tell you something. Persevering in trials does not mean continuing to do the stubborn, stupid things you've been doing. It means you do what God tells you to do. You obey him in the trial, and then you sit down, and you abide, and you let him work it out. Too often, we are trying to impose our will upon God's in order to justify, validate, or continue the trial that we're in. A genuine believer who truly loves God, who truly has genuine faith, can with confidence surrender in trials and stop doing and start being. And that's what we're going to talk about today. A follower of Christ is somebody who at one point in their life made a profession of their faith in Christ, and they have an ongoing love for God, and it can't be damaged, it can't be destroyed. It can't be messed up by troubles and afflictions here on earth. In fact, our faith is defined by those things. When we're here on earth and our, our faith and the Holy Spirit is in us, we see his work in the midst of our trials. In fact, it's through perseverance that we best demonstrate our love of God to other people. I was talking to somebody this week and they said, look, I was just talking to somebody about this diagnosis I have. And how the doctors and everybody tell me it's terminal. And everybody goes, that must be really messing you up. And he's like, no, I'm actually alive for the first time in a long time. I know where I'm going. I know what God's doing. And I'm at peace with what he wants to do. In fact, people said that they could almost see God in me because of what I've told them about how I'm doing. It's in trials that people look at your life and they go, you know what? You're, you're different than somebody else. You're, you're not acting the way someone else is acting. What do you have? What's wrong with you? There's a clear distinction evident to everybody between the person who goes through trials with unwavering faith and love in God compared to those who do not. James says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, brings forth birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. We talked about this last time I preached. Desire, temptation, choice, sin. 
The person going through a trial without faith in God is always, here's the tip off. If you want to see and try to find out if somebody's going through a trial with or without God, here's the key. I'll just give it to you. They always look for someone else to blame. You cannot go through a trial without God first convincing you that this trial is yours and yours alone. No one else is responsible for it. Nobody else. Yes, the circumstances of your life may be one thing. Yes, it may be something else. But the reality is, if you're in a trial, you're there. And no one else is to blame. Just as it's common for a man to be tempted, it's common for us to tempt or blame someone else. As if explaining to God that somebody else is responsible takes us off the hook. Not only for being tempted, but for succumbing to it. From the beginning, one of the chief characteristics of sin has been to pass off blame. If you want to see Satan working in the midst of something, look to see if blame is being handed off to somebody else, because that's what Satan does. Tries to convince you that it's not your fault, it's not your problem. You have an excuse. And the answer is no, I've been doing this since Adam. We're going to blame someone else. Genesis 3.11, the man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. She did it. This is Satan's first ploy. He's never changed it. If you see people going through trials, and they're going, Oh, it's their fault, or this happened, or I'm a victim. No, no, you're not. that's not what God is telling you. James clearly has no patience for foolish fatalism, where a poor man blames his poverty for turning him into a thief and tries to justify stealing, or a drunk man blames domestic problems and pressures for driving him to drink, or the reckless driving, and he doesn't allow the notion that the devil made me do it. James is saying, look, no one should say that God is even indirectly responsible for temptation to evil. It's not his to own. He's in no way and no degree responsible directly or indirectly for us being tempted, for us choosing to sin, or for what we've done since those consequences came available. And yet God says, here's the pattern. Let me show it to you. Desire, temptation, choice, sin. We've discovered that it's our desire that drives the process of sin. We each have unique desires that make us susceptible to different temptations. Satan can't read your mind, but he has a long history of studying human behavior. And based on your prior sins, he knows how to get you into situations to where you will choose or have a high chance of choosing to disobey God. It's not unique to you. It's available to all humans. All of us fall into this trap. Like I said before, Satan can't make you sin, but he'll sure put the wind in your sails when you decide you're going to. Animals and fish are lured to traps all the time. Some baits are just too attractive. They can't stand it. They have to bite. Looks good, smells good, appealing to the senses. That's what Eve said. That fruit, it looks good. It's appealing. I kind of like that. At that moment, she's in trouble because she's already beginning to disobey what God told her to do. We can't blame Satan. We can't blame his demons. We can't blame ungodly people. We can't blame the fallen world for our own sins. If there's one thing that should characterize Christians above all other people on earth is we have to own our sins. Full responsibility, full stop. It's yours. You have them, I have them, we all have them. 
we have to own it. The problem is not with the tempter from without, but the traitor from within. We have a part of us that chooses sin. You are responsible completely, totally, and without question for your own sin. James says you are tempted and lured and enticed, don't miss this, by your own desire. No one else, nothing else. Just as one lure works for a certain type of fish and not others, one person's passion is another person's repulsion. But Satan will put in your path the things that he believes you can choose your desires over God's. We're all susceptible to it. You and I have been given desires that we choose to fulfill in God-forbidden ways. Let me just explain that. What is sin? Taking a God-given desire and choosing to fulfill it in a non-God-given way. Choosing your path over his. You can't be saved from your sins if you don't own them. Let me repeat that. You cannot be saved from your sins if you do not own them. That's why God demands confession before repentance. Confession is taking full ownership of what you've done. Not blaming other people, not making excuses, not trying to clean yourself up in front of God. It's laying yourself bare in front of God and saying, this is what I've done. I know you know it, but I need to let you know that I know it now too. We have to soak in the weight of our sins and agree with God about the damage we've caused. We, too often, as believers, somebody will say, well, I did this. Oh, that's okay. God will forgive you. Let them soak in the damage of their sin. It's what's going to change them. It's part of persevering through trial. I don't want to admit that I did this, but I did it. And I can't blame anything else. And until I can get to the point where I can go in front of God and say, God, this is what I've done. Only then can I be restored. Confession and repentance must come in the reality of brokenness or they don't come at all. If you're confessing to God with excuses on your mind, you're not confessing. True surrender to Christ comes from gutted brokenness. When people tell me that they, they're ready to accept Christ, the thing I'm looking for is, are they broken? Do they feel the weight of their sins? Are they crying out in agreement with God that they need to be saved? Salvation comes from a heart that is truly broken before God, not a moment of goosebumps and chills that happen in some manipulated human emotional event. You sin because you have been lured and enticed by your own desire. Accept it. And God is going to make us choose a response to that truth. Even though we're saved, even though the Holy Spirit is in us, there's a battle going on in our minds and in our spirit for control. The Holy Spirit wants to destroy what's left of our sinful flesh. Jesus knew this. He told his disciples, he says, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, your desires are starting to flare. Satan is starting to try to entice you into temptation. Your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Pray that God will give you power. 
He warned Peter just hours before Peter allowed those desires to lead him to the sin of rejecting Jesus. He was warned by Jesus, pray so you don't enter into temptation. And just like Peter, you and I right now in this room are only moments away from allowing our flesh to lead us into temptation and into sin. We're not perfect. We're fallen. So when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray that God will protect us from responding to our desires in a manner that distrusts God. We, we commit sins for only one reason. We believe deep in our hearts, whether we want to admit it to ourselves or not, that we can fulfill our desires better without God than we can with God. That's what sin is. I have a desire. I think I know better what to do with that desire than God does. It's rooted in pride and selfishness. We think we can meet God-given desires with our weak human efforts. It's actually funny when you think about it. That somehow within us we have the ability to fulfill all that God's put in us. So James says essentially, look, stop being a fool. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Translated, stop being a fool. In light of these, he said, don't be deceived. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming circumstances. Stop blaming Satan for your temptations and sin. And above all, don't blame God. Take full blame on yourself where it belongs. Realize that your enemy, your fallenness, your lust, your weaknesses, your rationalizations, and your sins are within and have to be dealt with from within. If you're experiencing something in life that leads you into temptation... You put yourself in that predicament. God showed you multiple ways out. Showed you what you must do. I hate to keep beating this up, but we seem to not get this. Your sin and my sin is a consequence of what we do, nothing else. As soon as someone begins to blame someone else for their sins, you know they haven't surrendered fully to God. Because part of that surrender is the awareness of, this is me. This is all me. This is who I am. Bare and broken. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I can't blame anybody else. I'm here naked in front of God spiritually, and I know what I've done. James says, look, don't be the fool that tries to act like you didn't do it. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. What James is saying is, look, what comes from God is not sin, but every good thing. God can only bring good things to you. The perfect, flawless, holy goodness of God results in giving what reflects himself to you. His works reflect his character. James is telling us, look, from temptation to execution, desire, temptation, choice, sin, death, from here to here, God has absolutely no responsibility for any of that. That's all on you. He didn't put you there. He didn't inspire you to be there. You chose to be there. And now you're moving down a path that leads to death. But, James says, he does have full responsibility for every good thing. For every perfect gift that exists and comes down from above. Blame him for 
the things he's not doing, you need to recognize the things he is doing. When we as God's children are so abundantly and continually showered in God's goodness, think about that for a minute. Just today, God has done some incredible things in your life. You're here. You're breathing. You're listening to an echo. You're in this room. You, you, there's so many things God has allowed to happen to you today in this life. We are continually showered with gracious, valuable, and blessings from our Heavenly Father every day. And when you realize that, the question would be, why would evil have even the slightest attraction to us? That's where we get as mature believers. I don't want that. I've got the goodness of God. I've got God. I, I don't want that. So the sin side of the equation is clearly stated by James. You did this to yourself. You're helpless to fix it yourself. The longer you keep trying to fix it, the more times you're going to go through the same trial. Only God can save you from your sins. Only God can change your desires. Only God can destroy the old you and literally bring forth a new you. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. You see, we read these verses in James that we love to quote. Consider it joy. Show me your works and I'll know your faith. James is very quotable. But sometimes we skip over what could be the most incredible verse in James. And we're going to look at that today. James says if we persevere through trials, we'll be complete and lacking nothing. And we go, okay, that's good. And we tend to move on. But there, isn't there something in you that goes, how does that happen exactly? If I persevere through trial, if I let God do what he wants to do in my life, if I stop trying to shortcut him, stop trying to make excuses, stop trying to blame everybody else, and I let God take this trial to its end, whatever that is, and I trust him in love to do that, suddenly I become complete and lacking nothing. How does that happen? James says, persevere through trials and you'll become complete, lacking nothing. I mean, I understand if I stay in a trial, I'll probably build some spiritual muscles. I'll understand God's faith. My faith will grow. I'll get better at getting through these trials and trusting God. But an improved me is far from perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You understand that? I mean, we go through trials and yeah, we, our faith may improve. We may have stronger spiritual muscles. We may trust God a little easier, but that's not complete, perfect, and lacking nothing. That's a new and improved us. It's not what James promises. James doesn't say persevere through trials and you'll find that you can persevere through trials easier next time. That's not what he says. He says you'll be complete, perfect, and lacking nothing. In fact, more days than I care to admit, my faith in me is still far from complete and far from lacking nothing. I understand what Paul was telling the Romans. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I get that. There's a part of me that's, that's me. Romans 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
I still have some of that in me. I still struggle with it every single day. There are times in my life, times in my day, when I know I'm not seeking God. There are days when I don't think I can accomplish anything good. Sometimes my mouth still deceives. I wrestle to allow God to kill that part of me which is still in me. I know that I'm not yet complete and lacking nothing. I come focused on my relationship with God, hoping that my faith will grow and my spirit will more easily overpower that part of me that is left over from the life I had before I knew Christ. But it's still there. Paul famously taught about this war within, the spirit of God against the flesh of man and Satan. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of my God in my inner being, but I see members, my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's talking about this battle that's in us. If you ignore the battle within you, you're not being honest. All of us, every day, struggle with our sinful nature. Did you notice that Paul asked, who will save me from this body of death? He didn't say, who will give me the strength to fix this? What book can I read to overcome this? I need to, I need to solve my problem here. Who will teach me how to win this battle? No, no. He was clear. He knew if he's going to get delivered from this, it had to be God. This is supernatural stuff. If he's going to be delivered from his body of death, someone has to come save him. And then he answers his own question. Jesus is the one who's going to do it. He's the only one who can. Thanks to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, he is our deliverer. That's the condition of every sinful, non-believing person who's separated from God. James says it this way, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice something at the end of that verse. Carried out in God. You see, we have to bring our sins into the light. We, we have to admit to ourselves what we've done. We have to let God shine his light upon what we've done. Because fallen man's problem is internal. So the solution has to be internal. This isn't something that happened to you. This is a genetic, in a sense, disease all the way from Adam all the way through. If it's going to be solved, it's got to come through you. There's no external ritual. There's not a number of times you can attend church, a number of songs you can sing, ceremonies you can do, professions you can do, or actions you can do to change your basic sinful nature. You can't do it on your own. In fact, that's the reality all of us come to at some point is we can't do this on our own. We get to a point where we know if we're going to be saved, God's got to do it. We can't become righteous by deciding to start talking righteously. 
or, or to start um, trying to act righteously. That's not how we become righteous. We have to have a whole new heart. We have to be changed on the inside. We need a new nature. We need a completely new being. We need a mulligan. We need to start over. We need to get rid of everything that was us and have a new us so that we can now live the life that we know we're to live. We need to be recreated, if you think about it. So we're delivered from our sinful nature by Christ and Christ alone. It's through trials in our lives that our faith is manifest to us and our foundation is revealed to us. James has been teaching this now, well, through seven weeks. And now we're going to focus on how do you become complete and lacking nothing. It's a process called regeneration. Making something, or in this case, someone, a completely new thing. Not an improved old thing. Not a better, not a more improved you. It's regeneration is completely turning you into something you were not before. Period. He tells us this in one verse that we're going to unpack for the rest of the day. It's an incredible verse with an incredible promise. Of his own will, he brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is one of those passages that you can just blow off because you're like, I don't know what that means. And anytime you get to a passage and you look at it and you're like, I don't know what that means, that's God saying, dive deeper and I'll show you. You see, our will leads us to temptation, sin, and death. God's will brings new life. The new life that the Lord gives to those who believe in Jesus is godly, holy, Christ-like. It's the life of God in the soul of man. But by new birth, a believer is literally recreated, given a completely new nature that has no part of sin or evil. Our own desires bring death. The gift of Christ brings life. Note how we're brought forth by the word of truth. It's in trials that we not only understand the word of truth, but we hold on to it. We cling to it. We trust it. It's in trials that you find out if you just know the scripture or you know the scripture. It's in trials where you find out if you really can trust God's word or not. It's in trials where you find out if God's word is a strong enough anchor to hold you, to keep you upright. It's in trials where you realize that God is truthful and faithful and his salvation is secure. We may say it or sing it at church, but we experience it in trials. You will not know that God is sufficient until you absolutely have to have him be sufficient in your life. God allows trials in our lives so that we can experience the power that comes from living out his truth and surrendering to him when everything in us tells us to take control. See, when I say we surrender in trials, I'm talking about getting rid of that part of you that says, I can fix this. I know what to do. I can hide this. I can explain it away. I can change it. No, that's not, that's not what God's doing. God starts to work with you in trials when you begin to realize that you need him desperately to change the very core essence of who you are. Not your behavior, not your decisions, that deep core part of who you are where desires live. And your desire for God has to become the most important thing in your life 
and only God can do that through rebirth. The word that James uses here is brought forth. It's the same word used to describe Jesus coming out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. It's God announcing, I have a new creation. And he does the same with us. He brings us forth by the word of truth. He makes us new. He creates us as a new spiritual child of God. James remind us that we're just like Christ. We're, we're becoming like Christ. We're in a sense a sort of first fruit. James is talking to his uh, believers in the first century. He says, look, we are becoming something the world has never seen. We're a type of first fruit. We're the first generation, the first group of people who've been reborn with the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. See, we think, oh, you know, believers have been around for 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit's been around. They were the first generation to be reborn. They were the first fruit of us coming later. God had reborn them spiritually just like he raised Christ from the dead. And they've been reborn in the same way, just like he told Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. We're a new creation in Christ. The old is going, the new has come. And while you and I are trying to solve trials ourselves, looking for shortcuts, being deceived over and over by Satan, falling into the temptation that leads to our death, God is waiting for us to surrender. I brought you into this trial, so maybe, just maybe this time, you'll stop making excuses, own what's going on, and surrender to me. God is not into giving us temporary boluses of willpower to get us through the trial. He's in the business of creating completely new believers with desires that align with his temptations that no have no power over you anymore compared to what you've experienced in Christ. You see, I talked a couple weeks ago about if we're going to be transformed, somebody's got to change our desires. Desire, temptation, choice, sin. Man focuses on temptation and choice. That's where willpower comes in. I don't want to be somebody with strong willpower to avoid alcohol or lust or, or gambling or whatever it is. I want to be a person that no longer desires any of those things. And I can't do that, but God does it for me. And he doesn't wait for our physical death. As soon as you surrender to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you, and you're beginning a process. You've been reborn spiritually. Immediately upon your confession, repentance, and brokenness that usually happens in your trial, at that moment you become a spiritually reborn person with a power you never had before. And God begins to change you on the inside. If you'll just get out of the way and let him do it. This process of regeneration is an ongoing process. You'll work out the struggle between your old flesh and the new you while you're on earth. Much of the work being done in trials. It's through persevering in trials that you discover the process of regeneration becomes more complete. As you persevere through the trial, you begin to realize that God's way is best. That if you trust him to do what he's doing, the trial will end up growing you and changing you and molding you and you'll thank God for it later. From the moment you're saved, God creates a new spiritual you. But for a while, we're spiritual beings with the full potential and promise of God, but we're living in a dying flesh body that still has a sin nature. Thus the struggle. Thus the balance. 
desire, temptation, choice, sin still lives within me. But God is building in me a new person who doesn't desire those things. That's the war. That's the battle Paul talks about. Our flesh will one day die, but we will not. We've been regenerated, and one day we will be complete, lacking nothing. We'll be like Christ. How do we get there? James says, by persevering in trials. But I want to go a bit deeper. It turns out that we actually do nothing. We just trust God and surrender. It turns out regeneration is something that happens to us, not something we do. In fact, most of the time we just got to get out of the way. Let's look at this verse a little deeper. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will. This is the greatest promise in all of James's book. Yeah, you can look at trials, and yes, you can look at the, the quotes you have, but this verse tells you not only are you going to be complete and lacking nothing, here's how it's going to happen. This is a verse to commit to memory. In, in a sense, it's how James teaches us that we're going to become perfect. For the first question I want us to look at in this verse is, who does this work in us? And that sounds simple at first, because you know the answer is God, right? Then why are you trying to do it? If it's that simple, let God do what he's doing. I say it all the time. We surrender, God does everything else. We surrender, God does everything else. The answer in almost every circumstance in your life is, I'm going to surrender and let God show me what to do, and then I'm going to do it. He reveals truth to you. He shows you your sin. He gives you the faith to believe. He convicts your heart and drives you to your knees. He brings salvation to you. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It comes straight from God. He brings you to brokenness and gives you the power to surrender to him. Then he begins the process of your regeneration. And it will be his to finish. You don't save yourselves and you do nothing to earn his salvation. All you and I have to do, and I sound like a broken record, is surrender and let God do what he wants to do in your life. Stop fighting him. Engage him. Surrender to him. Sit down, abide in him, and don't do anything until he tells you that's what he's doing. Trust him and surrender to him. That's what we learn in trials. If I, you know, I went through that trial last time. I tried to fix it myself, and I'm right back where I started. So this time, at the very beginning, I'm just going to admit that I've caused a problem here. I have a sin nature, and this is my sin. God, I'm going to tell you that, and now I'm going to shut up and get out of the way. And whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. No matter how long it takes, no matter what happens, no matter what I think I should do, I'm going to stop thinking about this. I'm going to be and let you do. I'm going to abide in Christ. We abide in him, we trust him, we surrender to him, and then he begins to change us. The first thing we have to know is that the work is being done by God and God alone. He's the only one that can regenerate you. He's the only one that can make a new you. He's the only one that can change those sinful desires you have with desires for him. He's the only one who can give you new life, who can give you spiritual life, who can give you eternity. Stop looking at anything that doesn't do that. He gave us truth. He showed us truth. He convicted us with truth. He gave us the faith to believe by his own will, nothing else, no human effort, nothing you did. You didn't do a darn thing to deserve your salvation. 
God chose to save you. He pulled you out of the mess you were in. Me too. He revealed to you truth. He gave you the faith to believe. And then when you had just a little bit of faith, he met you there and took you the rest of the way. And you surrendered. And you may have thought you were doing it, but God was doing it through you. No human effort. He brings forth new life in you and me, just like he did Christ in the tomb. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Through his sovereign will, God washes away your sin, grants forgiveness, and plants new life in you and me. A completely new nature, a complete new person. Here's what he promised in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Notice in this verse how many times the word I shows up. And then also count the number of times it says, and you need to do this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it in you. I will remove the heart of stone of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. None of that says we're to do anything. Notice the end of that real quick while we're here. Why are you here today? Walking in his statues and careful to obey his rules. You think you decided that, right? You think that going to church, you decided, okay, I'm going to obey. No, I will cause you to. Even our obedience is under the will of God. Not only theologically, but logically, that's the only way life can be given to people that are dead. You see, we have to realize that prior to knowing Christ, we're dead. Desire, temptation, choice, death. That was the only option. We had no awareness or understanding of sin, no desire to turn for it, no powerful resource to change if we wanted to. We were dead. We seem to forget that. And the people around us who don't know Christ, guess what? They're dead. They're in desperate need of being regenerated. They can't do it. We can't do it for them. God needs to save them. It all happens by the sovereign will and power of God. John says he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will or flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To all who received him, they are reborn through the power of God. Think about it this way. No child has ever been born into the world because they planned it, willed it, or made it happen. Think about that for a minute. You're not here because you decided to be here. You just showed up one day. The product of the work of somebody else. Conception, gestation, birth, completely out of our control. It's merely the passive recipient of the will and action of your parents and of God. That's why we're here. Just as certainly nobody can recreate themselves into a new spiritual being. If you're going to be reborn, that has to happen externally to you. The natural sinful man can't make that kind of change in himself. 
In fact, he doesn't even know he needs to be changed. Remember, all are sin. All, not one, turn to God. Without God opening up our eyes and opening up ourselves to him, we don't even know we need to be saved. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Apart from God, you don't even know you need God. The only reason you and I surrender to God one day is because God said, hey, I'm revealing myself to you. I'm choosing to show you who I am. I'm going to give you the power to respond. I'm going to give you the faith to respond. All you have to do is surrender your will. Desire, temptation, sin, death belongs to Satan. Regeneration belongs to God. God doesn't need our help. He's doing everything. We're just to surrender and abide. That's it. Just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, you have nothing to add to your spiritual birth. It's a supernatural act of God that only requires our surrender. Stop doing, God says, trust and obey. We sing it all the time, trust and obey because there's no other way. So who's doing it? God. What is it? By his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth. He regenerates us. How did he do that? Through the truth of the word of God. It's a miracle of God by which new life is implanted in us. It's a new birth. And we become partakers of his divine nature. Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You see, a lot of people say, well, I'm saved because I chose to follow Jesus. You didn't. You're saved because God revealed himself to you and you could do nothing but follow Jesus once you realize that truth. God revealed himself to you. God gave you the faith to believe. He convicted you of your sins. He made you repent. He did, all you had to do was surrender to that truth. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. They've been reborn. God makes us into new spiritual beings. So how does that happen? Well, the scriptures tell us by the word of truth. It could be literally translated by the truth's word. Paul uses the phrase word of truth several times in his letter to Corinth. He speaks of commending himself as a servant of God in the word of truth, the power of God. He reminds believers in Colossae, the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. He admonishes Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. In broadest sense, the word of truth is all of God's word, all of God's truth, all of his essence. In him, you also, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. 
It's the truth of the power of God that changes us. It's the truth of the power of God that he uses to transform us. For this reason, Paul wrote those at Thessalonica, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which will perform its work in you who believe. You see, we, we think the word of truth, the word of God is the Bible and the scriptures, and it is. But it's also the essence of God himself. That book reveals who God reveals himself to be. That book shows us who God is. That book, while it is the word of God, reveals the word of God. And if we didn't get it the first time in the Old Testament, he says, okay, now the word's coming to you. I'm going to show you what being God, living out this book, looks like in human form. Tells them, I'm going to bring it to you. The word incarnate. He's coming into your world. Now you'll not only have it, hear it, understand it, you'll see it lived out. He will be the first fruit of who you'll become. You and I become spiritually reborn when God washes us, cleanses us, and allows his truth to wash over us and permeate every single cell in our bodies. It's his truth that transforms us. We not only become people who know about God's truth, we become people who are literally born into it. His truth becomes the essence of our being. Believers mature and it becomes almost impossible to separate their thoughts and actions from the essence of God's truth. Spiritually reborn, we become like Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the Word of God, the truth of God, the truth of the Old Testament, the truth of the Scriptures manifested in the flesh so that we could see what it looks like. His life was so aligned with God's truth that you couldn't tell Him apart. He followed the word, he obeyed the word, he read the word, and he is the word. It's the essence of who he is. His life was so aligned with the truth of the word that you couldn't separate it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The last part of this verse, why does he do this? so that we would be his first fruits. James explains that, that God regenerates us, those who put their trust in God. And the primary purpose is not to benefit man, but to fulfill God's purpose of believers coming. You see, we're the first fruits for the believers that follow after us. We demonstrate the word as the word lives in us, as we surrender to God's word, as we are manifest in the word, as we live out our lives like Jesus did, we become a first fruit for the people that are to follow later. First fruits were the first and best crops that were harvested and usually an indicator of what the rest of the season would be like. And a farmer usually would take that early harvest and store it away in case something happened to what came later. Locusts, calamities, droughts. But the Lord required that it be given to him to force them to trust him with the rest of the harvest. We are the first of many more to come. What God requests of us is so simply amazing. 
While we run around trying to solve problems that we can't solve, trying to improve our street cred, trying to get people to think something different about us than what we know to be true about us, while we're running around doing all those things, God simply says, why don't you just surrender and abide? Why don't you just stop? Stop, stop all that stuff. That's, that's human world stuff. Stop it. Just surrender. Let me fix this. Stop doing and just keep surrendering to allow God to work through what you're working through. You see, people tell me, well, I'm just not good at prayer. Yes, you are, because you worry like crazy. Worry is just praying to yourself. Tell God what's on your mind. Process with him. Stop doing and surrender. When you're in a first, when you're in a trial, you realize you're in a trial. Remember, James says, when you fall into it, when you suddenly wake up one day and go, oh, wow, I'm in a trial. And everything in you says to start doing stuff. God says, I want you to stop doing and just surrender in that moment. Your first action should be surrender, to commit to doing nothing. I'm in a difficult time. I need to be in the Word. I need to be in prayer. I need to surround myself with hymns that move me towards God. I need to stop doing, I need to stop explaining, I need to stop chasing Facebook, stop chasing other people. I need to stop trying to find human answers. God has allowed this trial in my life. I need to stop doing, I just need to be. Commit to doing nothing but abiding in Christ. At first it seems to be the hardest thing in the world. There's so much that you think you can do to improve it, to make it better. And it seems like you're not doing anything when you're just abiding. But that's where the power comes. You have to get to that moment where you go, God, I, I, I don't have anything to add to this trial. But I do want the supernatural to come out of it. And if the supernatural is going to change my heart and this trial, then I've got to get out of the way. Over time, with a bit of experience and trial after trial after trial, you start looking forward to giving the situation to God. God, you got this, right? Okay, good. I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. See, my burden is your yoke a lot. Yeah, okay, you take it. I'm just going to give it to you. If I start trying to pick the ball up, God, would you just slap me down? I don't need to do that. I'm going to abide. I'm going to trust you. You say your burden is light, and I'm going to trust that. You see, it's through abiding that the supernatural happens. It's in trials when we learn to persevere and keep our focus on the promise of God. It's in trials where we finally see the promises of God tested and to be true. Trials teach us to depend on the truth of God's word. If you don't go through trials, you'll never know if God's word holds up or not. It's in trials that we see the power of God manifest in our lives and in the lives of those around us. It's in trials that we begin to allow the process of regeneration to mold and shape us into God's fruit. Without trials in our lives, or let me rephrase that, without trials in our lives where we surrender and abide, we'll never experience the full and total dependence on God. You'll never see the miraculous of God in your life because you never surrender enough to let it happen. You see, there's a place beyond our efforts. There's a place beyond our abilities. There's a world. There's a, a place beyond what we can understand, do, or accomplish. It's called supernatural. Amen. That beyond the natural. You don't get there. You don't see it happen unless you allow God to do supernatural things in your life. 
Most of us never see the miracles of God he has planned in our lives because we don't surrender and we don't abide. But once you experience it, once God shows up in ways you never thought he would through a trial, all you want is more. I want to see that again. I want to feel that again. And you begin to understand the value of why you're going through these difficult times. And you can, like James, embrace a very real truth. Count it joy, my brothers, when you go through trials. When you see what God does in trials, your next trial is, okay, God, here we go again. Make me stronger. Change me, mold me, shape me. I'm all yours. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be here with you. Once you fall into a trial, if you're a believer in Christ, life gets really easy. Stop doing, start being. Surrender whatever God is doing. Commit to persevering. And then hold on to Jesus. Hold on to his word, his truth. His truth is true. You'll see that. You'll learn it. You'll discover it. Do only what he leads to do. But let me just tell you, most of the time, obey what you already know. Go back to the moment when you sinned and start confessing from that moment forward. You see, you and I are being regenerated. It's not something we do. It's something that happens to us. It's not something we earn. It's something God chose to do. And when you understand what's going on, you can consider them joy because you truly are becoming complete and lacking nothing. As believers in Christ, we need to start being in Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you allow us to go through trials. I thank you that all you want from us is for us to abide, recognize that you're God, and let you do God things. Most of us, many of us, have never seen you do what you're able to do because we've never stayed in a trial long enough to depend on you. God, take us to the place that you need to take us so that you can regenerate us. Take us to the place, whatever it is, that you need to take us so that we can learn, that we can experience what it means to truly be born again. Take us to whatever place you have to take us to where we know your truth is so true that people can't separate your truth from who we are. That the idea of disobeying your truth would be as foreign to us as it was to Jesus. For many perhaps who are hearing my voice, God, they don't know you. They don't know what it means to walk through a trial with you, with your assurance, with your patience, with your love, with your faith. God, would you move them towards you? Would you allow the trials in their lives to show them who you are, reveal to them the truth, and allow them the same gift you gave to many of us, an opportunity to surrender to you, to be reborn in Christ. God, for the many of us here, we're in that process of battling the flesh that's left with the spirit that's here, and too often, God, we're letting the flesh take over. Help us, God, to learn through this series, through the words of James, and through the power of your spirit, the truth of your word. All we have to do is abide. All we have to do is stay with you and focused on you and surrender. And you do everything else. Thank you for loving us in such an incredible way and doing for us what we could never, ever, ever do for ourselves. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.